Good to see everybody. Welcome to uh, sunny, sunny Brizzy. Good to be with you all. You're happy to be in the house of the Lord? Yeah. It's good to be back. Uh, thank you for allowing uh, the, the time away with family and to uh, be down in Adelaide we were and uh, uh, Joy and I were among some of the churches there, the FECA churches that we have some, uh, uh, some denominational ties with and encouraging them and preaching in their midst and I know that you were very, very patient with your last week's preacher. I heard that you endured endured Sunday evening's preacher, Pastor Craig, as he, as he, he tried and we think he did an okay job, don't you think? Oh, no, oh, that's, a, that's a very loud, silent no. But we are, we are, we're thankful for those who, are, who fill the pulpit and, and uh, administer the Word of God. We're in Exodus today, but just before we go there, we're going to be in chapter 8 and 9. Before we go, a couple, a couple of exciting announcements. Uh, at the moment, we are, uh, uh, we are missing Keith and a handful of the other uh, uh, young adults and, of course, his wife, as they are actually in Fiji right now on a, on a mission trip. A little bit, uh, there was a bit less noise about this one in the lead up. It's a, it's a bit of a different angle. This one is mostly networking, finding connections, scoping the land and seeing what we might do again later in the year when God willing we go back to Fiji. But, but the team is uh, preaching in local universities, encouraging local churches and trying to do some evangelism in the city. So please be praying for that. That's extremely exciting. And they do come back on, on Thursday, I think. <clears throat> and it's going to be Mid-April, where we have a uh, another small uh, team. I say small. It's it's Sam Reese and me. He's the guy with the funny hair, weird face, flowery shirt who went upstairs to take the kids. Um, uh, it sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? Uh, teach the kids the gospel because he loves the Lord Jesus Christ and the souls in our midst. That's, that's what I said. But anyway, him and I are going to be joining our Pastor Craig, who are going to the Philippines to do some pastor training, some preaching in churches, some evangelism, very short four-day trip in the middle of April. So please also, please, please be praying for that, that that would be a, a blessing to the Lord and the local churches there. And then it's going to be uh, the week after that, uh, sorry, but before that, next uh, let me, let me reorientate. Next week is April the 2nd, and it will be uh, the week that we get Pastor Craig and uh, his lovely wife, Katerina, who, who together planted this church 15-something years ago. They're going to be coming up because we're going to be praying over them as the next week, Easter Sunday, they are planting a church in the heart of the belly of the beast in Fortitude Valley. Praise God. Yeah. All right, praise God. He's... Uh, They've been back here among us in Australia from America for the last few months and very much been praying about what direction God's taken them in. And, and uh, in a couple of weeks, they will be preaching the gospel in the heart of Fortitude Valley. That's, that's Paul going into Corinth, right? That's the, that's the valley of the shadow of death in Brisbane City. I'm sure none of you have ever, have ever frequented there or that great burger joint they've got on the corner. Uh, I'm unfamiliar with it, but uh, a great place to plant a church and, and see the Lord save some souls. But, but, but also just this, uh, in two more weeks, I want to remind you, Easter Sunday, we'll be having our resurrection celebration. And on the Friday beforehand, Good Friday, please be inviting your friends how, how frequently willing people are to come to church for, 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 for secular seeming events like Easter, that everybody jumps in and don't mind being there for the Christian holiday. So please invite them that we might have the opportunity to preach the Lord Jesus Christ as crucified for sinners. Amen? All right, go, go to Exodus. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. And we are, we are uh, continuing our study on what is uh, going to be basically a three, uh, if we include the tenth one, a four-part study on the plagues that God afflicts Egypt with. And we reminded ourselves before we started that even though we in the English language will usually use the language of plagues, 
That usually has the idea of a sickness or a pestilence of some kind, but, but the Hebrew word for plague is really the word for a blow, for a, for a strike that a fighter might deliver to somebody's head. That's the, that's the idea that God is here striking and landing blows against the Egyptian pantheon of gods and the entire philosophy and religion of Egypt as he strips the demonic strongholds and powers over his people there. So we saw round one a couple of weeks ago where the, 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 the plagues, the strikings were focused on the Nile. The next four that we're looking at today really focus on the land and the land gods. And then next week it is going to be the, 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 the sky and the sky-related gods that are struck by Yahweh. Round one, God won. Unanimous decision. Round two, this is going to be, pardon the pun, a bloodbath. Some of you will get it. That's okay. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just keep moving on. How about we read, we read the text today? Exodus chapter, chapter 7, verse 3 to 5 tells us, as by way of recap, this is one of the themes that will be coming up again today. Exodus chapter 7, 3 to 5, is where God assured Moses that Pharaoh would not listen to his threats, or to his commands. Verse 3 of chapter 7. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against, the, against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This is going to be the themes that are coming up today. As God wages war against the Egyptian gods, as he says in Numbers 33, that, that he executed judgments on their God. That's what, he, that's what God recaps this, this scenario as. He is executing judgment on their gods and the other theme, the other thread that is going through this passage is the obstinance, the hard-heartedness, the unlistening stupidity, the folly of Pharaoh as he does not listen to God. Let us, let us read now Exodus chapter 8. We're going to be from verse 16 in the third plague right through to chapter 9, verse 12. I will skip some verses just for time's sake this morning, but I'll let you know when we get there. Look at verse 16. Hear now the word of the one true, living, triune God. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the land of Egypt became gnats in all of the land. The magicians tried by their secret art to produce gnats on man, uh, to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magician said to Pharaoh, "This is the finger of God." But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled 
with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow the sign will happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined with swarms of flies. Skip down to chapter 9 and verse 1. We will preach it all. We're just not going to read all of it at the moment. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the land of the, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord has made a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing. And the, all the livestock of the Egyptians died. But none of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, it was true. None of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And he did not let the people go. Lastly, the, the sixth plague here, the boils. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses... Throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. May God bless his fearful word in our midst this morning. Amen. Amen. Go back to chapter 8 and verse 16. As we go, we go just kind of plague by plague, not so much topical studies as we've done in some of the other chapters. We're just going to go through the four plagues that God inspired Moses to so account in, the, in this, uh, <coughs> this section of the book of Exodus. Look at verse 16. As we see here, the plague that Moses, through Aaron, through his staff, afflicted upon the Egyptians, which was that the dust of the earth became gnats in all of the land of Egypt. This is, this is most likely a kind of a, a, a flea, a, a, a mosquito, a, a lice type of bug that was all throughout the land of Egypt. This is, this is not so much entirely debilitating. This is not entirely destructive to the people in their land yet. What this, this, this plague is, this, this is a massive inconvenience. This is just extremely annoying. This is, this is God playing with his opponent in the ring a little bit. He's, he's ducking and he's weaving and he's skipping around just to make the gods look like fools. And so here are the Egyptians, not at all dying because of this plague, and not entirely destroyed, but entirely, completely infuriated because of the annoyance of these flies. This, 
this, these lice, the, sorry, not flies, the lice and the fleas. We see in verse 17, and I don't know how literal this is because it is a land of sand. Nonetheless, it says to us at the end of verse 17 that all the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. Part of this miracle is just how it took place. Again, I don't think all of it because because then there'd be no ground there in Egypt. It's all a dusty kind of sand. But, but somehow the, the layers of sand beneath them, the dust that was carried into the houses, the, the sand on every one of their four-wheel drives, every bit of sand that you could see evolved, sort of, sort of transformed into a gnat and flew into the faces and all throughout the land of Egypt. This was an extremely annoying plague for God to strike upon Egypt. You see, though, the striking language also appears here in verse 16 when God tells Moses to tell Aaron to take your stick, the, 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 the staff of the Lord, and literally strike the ground with it. This was a sign because in Egypt they had an earth god, the god of ground, the god of dirt, the, the god of the, of the earth, and his name was Geb. Just a bad day to be visiting a church if your name's Gabe today, but here we are. Uh, the Lord is angry with you. <laughs> he, he, they're told, go and strike it. And this was a sign against the Egyptian god Geb, the, the god of the earth and the ground. It was his realm of authority, and it was being stripped from his hands as God showed his sovereignty over the land in order to judge the people. But here we are to consider his followers, Geb's, Geb's worshippers, the, the magicians. We have even from their own mouth today them them admitting defeat, them, them admitting not, not entirely that Yahweh, the Jewish God, the Israelite God, the Hebrew God, they're, they're not admitting that he's the only God yet. They're not admitting that, that he's the most powerful God. They're not admitting that, that they have allegiance towards him. What they're admitting is that he is not a plaything. What they're admitting is what they have not yet admit through the, 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 mirror, the plagues that came beforehand where they were able in some measure to replicate the plagues. They, they tried this time. They were unable to do it. At least what they had to conclude this time was that this is not merely one of our gods testing us. This is not merely the, 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 the sleight of hand of Moses and Aaron. This is, this is nothing more than a true God, not, not the true God. They don't use the name Yahweh. But they say, a God, this, this is truly the, the finger of a God in our midst doing something powerful. They were admitting that this was no lower power, but he means business, and he is a force to be reckoned with. Reckoned with. Gabe has been triumphed over by the power of Yahweh right in front of Pharaoh's eyes. Pharaoh saw it happen. Pharaoh is watching Geb be absolutely destroyed, and yet, and yet Pharaoh, it says, hardens his heart against the information. He hardens his heart, unwilling to repent and turn over to what the Lord has commanded. He was willing to go out with the shamed Geb. He was willing to, to go down with Geb, his God, though he was being utterly ashamed in front of him. The immense inconvenience of gnats, lice, and mosquitoes was not enough to soften his heart. And so, without word, I mean, you look at the end of this plague, a fairly quick one, down in verse 19, we don't have any word that it ended or how it ended, whether he begged for mercy or, or, or whatever. It's just as if it, it slides straight into the, the next strike of Yahweh, as if he's, he's slipped the jab of gnats and then now he's coming in for a large right hook with the swarm 
of flies. So, so before we even know if it's ended, before we even know how it ended, we're straight into the next plague, which is the fourth, the plague of flies. Look at verse 20. This plague came with an announcement right to Pharaoh's face. He goes and he meets him as God had commanded him early in the morning, back out on the water of the Nile, just as he had done the first time. Do you see what's happening here? Moses rocks back up and Pharaoh, he has PTSD at this point. He sees Moses on the edge of the Nile and he starts, he starts shivering and jittering. Why is he back? What's he going to do? And, and it's as if Moses is standing there, still the, still the blood-stained reeds on the side of the Nile. There Moses stands and he's saying, we, we're going to do this again? You up for another round of all of this? You want to you go again through the cycle that God just put you through? You, you want to stand up and take another one on the chin? And, and so he threatens Pharaoh with what God told him to say. It was, it was out in public. It was in front of his, his servants and his, his media press and, and the, the, the interns and the advisors and the royal family. Everybody's out here in the open so that they can all see that the reason that they are going through these plagues is precisely because of the obstinance of their king, their leader, Pharaoh. He is the one afflicting them with these things because he refuses to repent. And so he's, Moses is as if he's saying, now that you know, now that you all know, that our God means business. Will you now let us go or will you go again through the affliction of God? Look at verse 21 and 22. This is, this is a disgusting, very Queensland-themed summer plague. Look at this. Verse 21 and 22. This is how severe it was going to be. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, and your people, and into your houses. No, no fly screen mesh invented in, in Egypt yet. That, that hadn't yet been installed. If they're swarming outside, they also will sweep into the homes. And also, he says, end of verse 21, and also on the ground upon which you stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. This, this sheer volume of flies is horrifying. W one fly, one fly is infuriating. It'll make the most holy man swear every single curse word under his breath as he's trying to go off to sleep. You ever had that happen? Your husband's just swinging like he's, like he's in, a, in a Mike Tyson fury, fury because of the little... And just as he's, he's dozing off to sleep after a hard day, or you wives are dozing off to sleep after a hard day of looking after the kids, and, and then it lands on the nose, in the ear, somewhere. It just knows the most sensitive skin parts, and it lands there on, on the lip. And, and here you are, like you've, like you've got some kind of condition, just flipping and flailing in the bed. That's one fly. Five flies is, is an inconvenience. It's very annoying. And, and a dinner party, it's, it may, may be even embarrassing that there are so many flies around. It's, it's, it, they, they crawl on you. They get in all. It feels like you've just swatted off one before another comes up. Fifty flies is an infestation, and you start having to hunt for where they've laid their maggots. Five hundred flies, you're moving out and calling, calling what's that, that Christian-owned business? Exodus Pest Control. No, no sponsorship here, but it'd be nice. I'm just saying. Uh, Exodus Pest Control to come in and remove the guys. And, but, 
but 5,000, 50, the billions that are now in the land of Egypt are a complete and utter divine act of judgment. It is disgusting and it is now entirely incapacitating to the entire nation. That's why, that's why we're told that the land was, was ruined over in, in verse 24. The land of Egypt was ruined. It doesn't mean a, a topographical destruction like the, the crops and the buildings and the people are dead, but, but this is that the quality of life. This, this holiday spot has now become an infested cesspit. This, this, this beautiful capital city has now become overrun with flies. Just think about it. You're, you're trying to swap them away, but as, as soon as your, arm is, is, your hand is at arm's length away, you can't see your hand anymore. It's, it's blacked out by the swarms of flies. As you, as you walk, it says here that even the, the ground upon which they stand will be flies. Can you hear the crunching? Every time you just try and get away, you try and get some rest or some solace, they're, they're, they're crunching under your sandals and, and mushing your beautiful Egyptian woven rug. Dad. It's, it's as if every time you go to eat, you're taking mouthfuls of the things. They're, they're not patient. God is not being kind and respecting the sensitivities of our gut that turns as we think of this. But, but every drink, every mouthful of food, they are taking in the mouthfuls and, and the crunching and the disgusting reality that God is, is pouring out upon the Egyptians at the moment. I, I see the pregnant women just, just, just curling a little bit. I'm, I'm not sorry. This is the Bible. Everywhere, in every house, in every room, in every part of the city, it is there. They can't even talk to complain without taking in a mouthful of flies. And then, of course, the worst part. The worst part. The maggots. Can you imagine, just at the, just at the two-day mark, as, as you start, start, start swimming through the pools of maggots that they have laid all throughout your cupboard, your pantry, your, your food supplies, they are everywhere. Had they, this is a question we have to ask, had the Egyptians yet had time to clear away the mountains of dead, rotting frogs yet? We don't know. Is there still coagulated puddles and pools of blood that had formed from the Nile River? Had they even had time to rinse out all of their bowls and cups and, 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 and cisterns that held water which turned to blood? Is that still coagulating and rotting and being just the perfect greenhouse for maggots to grow and infestate? We don't know, but this is a disgusting, horrifying Tim Burton-styled, Stephen King-themed plague that is sweeping across Egypt at the moment. There is, <coughs> there is some who believe that the fly was the manifestation of the god Uapkit. I'm, I'm not so sure about that. It seems more that she was related to the, to the beetle, but, but at least her role was to be in Egypt and to protect Egypt, and especially the pharaoh, from evils and attacks. So whatever her little animal thing is that she chucks up on her, her flag, we don't care. She is absolutely failing at this juncture. She has no power to rescue, save, protect, preserve Egypt or Pharaoh when the Lord is here and striking them. It says that the land was ruined by the swarm of flies. They had to live in an unlivable situation until God either relented and showed mercy or Pharaoh gave up and released the Israelite people. They were living in an unlivable situation. Now, here's, here's at least a positive. 
that when you can't see, when, when you can't move around without being bitten and eaten alive by the flies and your visibility is entirely gone, I mean, you can't drive. There's, there's no call in a cab. Uber is out of, out of our business at the moment. You can't work either. There's no one striking hammers on nails when you can't see. There's, there's no one doing their carpentry, doing their mason work, doing their normal, ordinary, economical vocations, which means there is no slavery at the moment. There's no Israelites being whipped and thrown into the hard labor of building the, 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 the buildings and the temples without straw. That's not going on at the moment. So at this juncture, what we have is a rest and a solace and a peace for the people of Israel. It was a curse upon God's enemies, which was at the same time a respite to God's people, which is what we see in verse 22. Look back at chapter 8, verse 22. This was one of the big messages God was sending at this point of the tale. On that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Here is the very obvious message that was being sent by God to Pharaoh, to his servants, and to the whole land of Egypt this morning. God's power is inescapable. When he seeks to judge, when he stretches out his strong arm against his enemies, there is no dependence upon military might. There is no technology. There is no, no dependence upon their, their false gods that was ever going to be able to rescue them at all. It's, it's not just. Here's, here's what he says. He says, so that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst or amongst the earth. What he's telling them is, I'm not the God of the Hebrews. That's not my definition. That's my covenant relationship because I condescended. But before I was ever God of the Hebrews, which, yes, I am covenantally, I was first God of everything. And I remain God of everything and everywhere. It's, it's a bit of a trick question where I to ask you, who is the God of Egypt in ancient Egypt? What's, what's the answer? Yahweh. He is the God of Egypt. Who's the God of ancient Babylon, the great whore? Yahweh. There's only one God. Who's, who's the God of ancient Greece? Who's the God of ancient Rome and all of its whoring and violence? Yahweh. There is only one God. Don't, don't be confused as we call these other things little g gods and false gods and idols. Just because they are there, that doesn't mean they are in the same category as Yahweh. It is not as if it is not as if God is the best of many of the gods. No. It is not even that he is the best out of all of the gods. He's better than every one of them. No. There is no better or best when you are the only one in the category. He is the only self-existent God with infinitude, with eternality, and as we look back in chapter 3, with aseity. He is the only ground of all existence. He is the one, he is the great distinction... He's the one who created by his word and hand all of the false gods, which are truly demons. 
He made them as angels. They rebelled, they, they fell, they were cast down, and now they are afflicted and seeking to destroy mankind, seeking to be worshipped by mankind, and God's looking around just, just walloping them, just beating them up by, the, by their hordes and by the multitudes in the ring, and he's just preaching very loudly, I'm the only one of me. I am God, Pharaoh. I'm God without border restriction. I am God without geopolitical definition. I am God of everything, everywhere, and everyone. You cannot escape my judgment. Isn't, isn't that what we forget so often today? I was, I was in, in Adelaide just this week, and I was on a scooter, one of the, the electric ones, to go and buy my wife a Mars bar in the middle of the night. Okay, no applause later on. Yeah, I was in, in Adelaide, and I bought this Mars bar, and, and I was driving. She's pregnant. I, I try and serve. I can't carry the baby for her. And so, so I was there, and I was on my way back. This guy was looking for directions. He asked me because he thought I looked like a local. I didn't take it personally. And he was just looking for someone because he had nowhere to stay. He just arrived from Thailand, and he tells me this. His third wife had divorced him, and he lost everything. And here he is back in Adelaide. And I thought, great, I'll tell. I helped him to a, to a hotel and then, and then started sharing the gospel. Now, here's, here's, here was his response. Uh, I said to him, now, where do you think you're going to go when you die? Where do you think your soul goes? He says, uh, I, haven't, I haven't done much thinking about it. I don't choose to think about that sort of thing. It's about the here and now. But, but where do you think I go? I said, brother, I, I think where you're going is hell, but I don't know where you'll go because you might yet trust in Jesus Christ and be forgiven. And here was his response. Hey, I'm not a Christian. Jesus isn't for me. Now, how often do you hear this? You're sharing the gospel on the street, you're talking to somebody over the table or, or at work, and the response is, the kind of logic we think and, or they think is, Jesus isn't my God. Don't talk to me about Jesus. And I said to this guy, I said, I know you're not a Christian. That's precisely the point, because Jesus is still your God. I'm not here sharing the gospel with people who are fine to identify with Jesus. It is, in fact, your, your failure, your refusal to bend the knee to Jesus that is the reason you need Jesus. But the problem is when we think that way also, and we think, you know, it's great to have a Christian nation, or it's great that Jesus is my Lord, but, but you know, this person doesn't recognize him. He's not their Lord. No, no, that's not how it works. Jesus is Lord. The gospel proclamation is a demand that people receive that, admit that, and find salvation in their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for them. But, but we even can think bigger scale here. Do you know who the God is in these days after the ascension of Jesus to the throne? Do you know who the God is of the atheistic North Korea? Jesus. You know who the God is of the Islamic nations? Jesus. You know who the God is of the, of the Buddhist Burma and Thailand? Jesus. Who's the God of the Hindu India? Jesus. Don't think for a second that just because he tolerates or puts up with for a time idolatry that he has ceded sovereignty. He has not. And history will show that Jesus takes back all that is his for himself to his own glory and the glory of the Father. He is the only Lord in the midst of the earth. Back to Exodus, back in Egypt, what he is doing, Yahweh is executing judgment upon these false gods so that the people know for certain there is only one true God who deserves such a name. 
Now look at verse 25. This is the part that we did not read before. Verse 25 of chapter 8. Moses, he starts to negotiate. This is a sign of the of the fault lines starting to crack in, in Pharaoh's heart and mind. His, his grip on the situation is slipping if he ever thought he had any grip. His, his, his fear, his lack of control, and his lack of power is now breaking down. The, the last couple of, uh, sorry, the, the last plague before uh, uh, last week was, was of the frogs, and, and he did come to, Pharaoh, uh, to Moses and to ask for him to pray for him, but that was all just a dirty little trick. He wasn't at all fearful. He he was just utilizing Moses, lying to him to get the plague to stop. But here, here we recognize that he's actually willing at this point to compromise, to negotiate, and to allow the Israelites a little Jewish holiday within the land if that's okay with God. Look at verse 25. He says, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go and sacrifice to your God. Okay, you can do it. Go and sacrifice to your God within the land. Okay? Well, what do you do when the people are, are far too, too zealous and passionate about, about what is right and just and given by God? You know, throw them a holiday. Right? <laughs> Give them a stimulus check. Give them a holiday. Uh, distract the masses. Just let them go over and party a little bit. And Moses, Moses says, no, not at all. That, that won't do. First of all, because that's not what God asked. Pharaoh has just forgotten the first rule of negotiating. You need something to negotiate. (laughs) What is he sliding across the table here to Yahweh? An empty hand. He has absolutely nothing. He's bluffing at this point. He's saying, I'll let you do a little thing, and and, you know, I'll I'll let you do it. But what's he going to offer? What's on his hand? Nothing. And God will not not accept it. Now, you have to try and get in the mindset of Pharaoh. Why doesn't he just let him go? Why doesn't he give up? And And of course, there's the hardness of sin, which calluses the heart against logic. There is that. But there is a logical side to it that that Pharaoh has to recognize. Were he to let the the more than a million Israelites go, the fears of chapter 1 would be realized. He would be supplying to the nearest neighbor, to the nearest nation who wants Egypt's wealth, he would be supplying them with a standing army of over 600,000 men who had more than enough motivation to come and kill Pharaoh. He could not let that happen. He refused to let that happen. He would rather hold tight, try and just wait out Yahweh, and at this point, he even tries to negotiate. God will not be allowed anything. There is only one Lord. There is only one God. There is only one sovereign, and it is not Moses, though he thinks he is. So he asks this, he says, I'll just give you a short time. And, and Moses says, kind of, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but he's right. He says, no, first of all, that, that's not what Yahweh asked. But what he says is, you know, it's funny. You, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, defender of the faith, were you to allow us to sacrifice to our God in your land, what you would be advocating then is the slaughter, the killing, the sacrificing of your own holy animals. Bulls, cows, sheep, goats, that the, that the Israelites would be commanded to sacrifice were holy animals in Egypt. You weren't allowed to, to butcher them and kill them, let alone to a foreign false god and in their eyes. And, and so here's what Moses is saying to Pharaoh. You know, it's funny. If you command that, you're guilty, but also you would then be bound by law to have all of us stoned and killed for blasphemy. 
you really want dead, holy animals all throughout your land? I don't think so. It's, it's a good little trick here. It's a good piece of, piece of reasonable logic that he's applying to Pharaoh. And, and so Pharaoh cracks a little bit more. And he, and he says, fine. Look at verse 27. Uh, sorry, verse 28. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Here's his last word. Just don't go too far. Just, you know, promise you'll come back. He's, he's, he's now the, the insecure boyfriend that, that doesn't want any separation. He's got the anxiety. He goes, okay, you can go. You're, you're right. I have no argument. But, you know, don't go too far. Keep your phone on, please. You can have your boys weekend, but, but answer my texts. Okay? And then what's his other, little, his other little question at the end? They're not even a question, a demand. Plead for me. He knows that he is in entirely the, the receiving position. He is entirely in the, in, the, in the downstream position. He has nothing to offer, nothing to give. He, he's at the mercy of Yahweh, and yet he makes demands. He makes demands, don't go too far, while at the same time asking for mercy and for respite. It is, it is just all so common, so frequent, that even in our day, it's tragically common. People call out to God for help, while judging him for his harshness. We, we, we have friends, family members, loved ones, that, or people we just meet at work or on the street who, who at the same time will, 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 will be violently angry at God for being so harsh and so judgmental, but at the same time ask and plead and beg for, for some mercy, for some help in their time of need. Or even, maybe even you. Maybe, maybe you know in your heart of hearts that you're not a Christian. You're in a Christian community. You're in a Christian family, but you are not a Christian. And like Pharaoh, you know that God is God. You know that Jesus is Lord. And, and yet inside your heart, you see only hardness and harshness and sin and hatred towards him and his, and his Lord. This was, this was me growing up. I, I would so frequently beg God to be merciful to me, to, to give me patience, to, to, to give me salvation, to, to do something for me because I was in the throes of sin, the, the anxiety, the, the deepness, the darkness of all that sin does to a, to a young heart. And yet at the same time I was unwilling to, to submit. I didn't actually want to do anything for him. I didn't want to actually bend my knee. I didn't want him to be the Lord. I just wanted him to be my savior. Maybe that's you this morning and you need to recognize that the God is not simply a, a vending machine of mercy. He is a covenant God calling you to believe, to love, to come into relationship with him through his son. Do not do not be like Pharaoh in this day who is calling out for mercy while judging and hating God to his very core. But how tragically common it is. Moses goes, he does pray. The flies, the maggots, the crunching, the eating, it does stop. And Pharaoh does lie. He does cheat. He does harden his heart and does in fact not let the Israelites go out of his hand. He secures the guards against the Jews and does not let them go. And we come to the next plague. The, the fifth plague, our third plague this morning. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Verse 1 through 3 reads like this. Then the Lord said to Moses, go back into Pharaoh. You met him out on the Nile before. Go back into his dwelling place, into his castle, into his into his throne room, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the land, <coughs> the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock 
that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Here's the irony. The God of Moses heard Pharaoh's lying request. Remember what he asked last plague? He said, just, just stay in the land and sacrifice your animals. And Moses responds, what? You, you want your holy animals dead throughout the land of Egypt? That's really what you want? Next plague, that's exactly what he gets. It, it's as if the, the Egyptian gods went in for a leg takedown on Yahweh and they met with a solid knee to the head. That's what it was like. Oh, oh you want my legs? Bang, KO, on the ground. That's, that's what this was. The, the irony that God plagues Egypt with is dripping in this text. And so we see the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks all going down. We have to remember that not only are the plagues cumulating, in the sense that the leftover destruction of the prior plague is still all over the map in Egypt when the next plague comes upon them. That's, that's a cumulative effect, but also the culminative effect. That, that is the, that it is also each plague is getting worse. So at this point, what we have is an utter destruction of the economy of Egypt, not in a way that can be reversed like the blood to water, but rather, in a permanent way, many, many, many of their animals will die. Those livestock, which were so valued in such a society, with a mark of wealth, right? You don't put your, your money in a bank account. You put your money into a, a herd, and, and there's your riches, and God was going to destroy them. They were, they were also the beasts of burden that worked. They were the food here and there. They gave milk, cheese, and dairy products. They, their skin and fur were used for products. They were, they were also... Worshipped and, and now, as Pharaoh goes walking and sees the very severe plague, he sees his holy animals, the, the animals they need, just littering the landscape, rotting belly up in the hot Egypt sun. It says in verse uh, 7 here that all, <coughs> sorry, in verse uh, 6, all the livestock of the Egyptians died. The better rendering of that would be all the kinds of the livestock of the Egyptians died because there's still some livestock alive later to die in the hail and then to die in the final plague. So he's keeping them alive to kill the rest of them later. But, but this is all types of them, the bulls, the cows, the camels, the goats, the sheep, the horses, and the donkeys. And this was a sign once again against their gods. The gods of Egypt were, were many of them uh, 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 related to these beasts of the livestock that we've just read. We have Bat, Bukis, Hesat, Mnevis. We have Isis, the, the, the lady who had cow horns on her head. She was the great mother god. We have Hathor, who was a cow, the, the goddess of women and birth and fertility and love and motherhood. We have the bull, the great, the great Apis bull. A-I-P-I-S, the Apis bull, which was worshipped. He was the, the symbol, the god of bounty and fertility and fullness. And, and Api, in fact, represented a more sort of the force, if you will. Uh, he, he represented the eternal bond of unity and eternal eternity itself and the harmonious balance of the universe. He was, he was associated with the king of Egypt, and among many of his meanings, he represented the strength and vitality of the monarch. And here's Apis lying belly up in the ground. The, 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 the Egyptologists tell us that you can look through Egypt and find multitudes of these bulls 
buried with coffins in regalia and dress and given fanciful, pompous funerals. Like, better than I'm going to have, better than you're going to have, a bull in Egypt. How's, how's that feel? That's what they did. That's how they worshipped. Now, now, my question is, are they trying to do that with all of the bulls, the, the pure black bulls they would worship up? Are they doing that now with all of the black bulls in the land of Egypt? They couldn't. No, no, God is, God is stripping down and breaking down the worship to these false gods. The pantheon of demonic powers channeled through the false religion of Egypt has no power to defend their worshippers or their livestock, the manifestations of those gods whatsoever as God judges. His power is inescapable. His power is inescapable. And often what we see is that when God starts to, to judge people, he uses the created order to bring back upon the heads of those who themselves have used the, great, the, the, the created order against God. Here's, here's what I mean. The creation or dominion mandate that God gave to Adam was be fruitful and multiply, take dominion over the earth. Mankind obeys that when they form societies and technologies. That's, that's a good thing. That's what mankind is supposed to do. They sin against God when they form societies through families and technologies. They, they take dominion over the created order and fail, refuse to worship Yahweh, just like at Babel. Now that's the spirit of Babel, that mankind comes together to worship themselves and their demonic overlords. That's, that's the spirit of the generation before that, that God flooded. That they come together, they take dominion over the world in such a way as rebellious against God. And so what God does in his, in his divine irony is he takes the, the very land, the very world, the very created order that they are taking dominion over, and he gives it dominion back over them. In, in the Bible, this is called decreation judgments. In the theology, we call this decreation judgments, that he takes nature, turns it on its head, and flips it on top of those people who are failing to worship God. He still does that today in usually less miraculous ways, but he still does it all throughout biblical history. But here today in Egypt, this is an especial judgment against them. And look at verse, verse 7. This is where we see it coming through very clearly. God was making a distinction of special protecting love over his people. It says that none of the livestock were dying in Egypt. And when Pharaoh got word of this, he sent word to go and check whether this is true. Every plague has kept its hands off of the Israelite people, the people in Goshen. This time, he sends somebody to check. He cannot believe that this is true. This is part of the miracle, not just the judgment, but also where it stops. On the very border of Goshen, the judgment stops, and he is infuriated. <coughs> the very same power that judges God's enemies protects his covenant people protects his covenant. This looks different in every situation, but even today, even today, God still, by the judgment, by the power with which he judges enemies, still, at the same time, protects his covenant people, the church, the, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, come under this divine protection, whereby whatever other judgments God pours out, we are never drinking that cup. We are never ever under the wrath of God. Romans 8 tells us of the, the electing, sustaining, saving, preserving love of God that even though we may be in the world, even though we may suffer alongside the world, 
with the world, among the world, we are not suffering like the world. We will always suffer under the permanent love of Christ. Romans 8 finishes this way. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? We, for your sake, O God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sure neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, somebody. No matter what we go through, we need this, this, this picture of Exodus to remind us and tell us, no matter what we're suffering, never once blaspheme the covenant-making God so as to think that you are under his wrath if you have faith in Jesus Christ. It is never the case. No matter what your feelings tell you, no matter what your conscience tells you, if by faith you are joined to Christ, you are never under the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We see Israel's protection here, and we see God's glorious love. Our, our hearts are softened as we remember this God is our God who loves us so deeply, but not Pharaoh. As he sees this special electing love, he burns, he calluses, and he hardens so that God sends the next end for today, our final plague. Look at verse 8 of chapter 9. Here, Moses, <coughs> in great irony, is told by God, go over to the kilns, the brick kilns, that the Israelites have been laboring in and laboring in front of for so long to make bricks for Egypt, go to those kilns, take handfuls of the soot that is in the bottom of them, throw them over Egypt, and they will become a dust cloud that swarms throughout Egypt. And as it lands on the skin of the Egyptians, it becomes this festering, pustulating, leaking, itchy, bleeding, disgusting sore. These, these boils that become all over man and beast as God foretold. This is in fact the most severe so far. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians. It's, it's that not only at this point are they so inconvenienced, are they, are they overpowered, it's that at this point their mobility is restricted. They couldn't even get up to go and stand in front of Moses. My, my personal opinion is that at this point they die. The magicians are killed in this plague because we hear nothing more of them for the rest of the book. They, they perish, or at least functionally so. Pharaoh doesn't keep on, on, on talking to them. They're, they're irrelevant. They are destroyed from the ring. They are thrown over the top rope. They are irrelevant. God's power is shown here in his judgment in every way because even over the gods of Amon-Re, the physician god, like kind of just a general practice god, 
a GP kind of God. Then you have Thoth, the, the god of the healing arts. He's more of a medical kind of god. You have Imhotep, the god of, uh, 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 the god of medicine, the uh, Sekhmet, who is the goddess of diseases. She was more the, the sort of new agey alternative medicine kind of gal. Uh, that was Im, uh, uh, Sekhmet. And she had actually, the priests who worship Sekhmet are the oldest, or were, the very first of all of history's uh, medical guild of practitioners. This is how far back they go. This is the, the ancient powers that God is bringing down. Sekhmet held the power to create and end pandemics. Thanks, Sekhmet. She's still alive today, apparently. She, is the, she held the power to create and end pandemics, and here is God creating one of his own, spreading it out, and not one of them have the ability to heal the boils. Not one of them have the ability to stop the pandemic. God is here laying a sixth blow to the head of the gods of Egypt. They, they also, this is the, the other part of it, they, they couldn't even worship their gods. When you have boils and leprous diseases upon your skin, you're unclean, you can't go into the temple. Their gods are not even recharging by the worship the humans are giving them because they're not allowed to worship them, their own, their own foolish Idiotic system is crumbling in upon itself. One of the themes we take from this last plague, as the plagues culminate and accumulate, is that God is removing from the Egyptians every opportunity to continue on in the sin that angered God. By his plagues, he's taking away their freedom to do the sin that angered him in the first place. They couldn't worship because they can't go into worship. They can't enslave the Jews because no work is going on. They can't deny Yahweh's existence anymore. He's here and afflicting them. He had removed every opportunity for them to rebel. All but one. The only space that God had yet allowed rebellion to occur is in their hardened hearts as they suffer. This is a sign of God's cosmic end-time judgment. There is a day coming. There is a fearful, terrible, horrible day that is coming when Jesus Christ will remove from this world and from the experience of every unrepentant sinner every opportunity to continue on in the sin that has earned them such a judgment. There will be no more sex to lust after. There'll be no more beauty that people can, can be vain about. There'll be no more power to, to boast of. There'll be, there'll be no more possessions to, to covet and to, to steal and to plump yourself up with. There'll be, there'll be no more people to betray or to lie to. There'll be only you and God and the internal rebellion of your heart which despises him, though it cannot escape him. There is a day coming when every opportunity for sin will be removed and the sinners are merely left. In the lake of fire, what we are told is the second death, the hell of torment and destruction and suffering in the furnace under God's judgment. And just like the, the, the Israelites could speak to their, to their unbelieving neighbors in that day, so we must speak, so I now preach to all of those unbelievers in our midst who, who are still holding on to your ever-shortening rope of this life wherein you can still enjoy your sin. The day is coming when it will break, when there will be nothing left to hold on to. There will only be the consequences of your sin and no enjoyment of it. 
There will only be the judgment of your sin and none of the actioning of it. There is a day coming when Jesus judges the world in truth and righteousness. And God has proven this by raising him from the dead. Until that day, or until the day you perish, until that day, the mercy of Jesus is screaming to you from the pages of Scripture. Do not meet God on that day still in your sin. Do not meet God without Jesus Christ. Do not meet Jesus without being clothed by his righteousness, without being washed by his blood. But until that day, there is mercy put on. There is, there is grace, there is forgiveness put on full display in that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the God who is judging these gods, came into our being, came into our world, lived the perfect life, loved people, sought and saved the lost, died for us on the cross of Calvary, punished for our sin, taking onto himself a punishment that makes these plagues look like child play. He took onto us, onto himself rather, our sin and our punishment, the drinking full, the eternal wrath of God, so that he can present to you a clean slate, a forgiveness, a new heart, an infilling of the Holy Spirit, a love that is eternal, that will never be separated from you. Do not meet God on that fearful day. Meet him today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off again. Today is the day that unlike Pharaoh, you can bend your knee, trust in Jesus, receive his salvation, and be saved from your sin. Friend, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. He is merciful, he is loving, he is gracious, and he is powerful. He's the only Lord in the midst of the earth. Come to him today. Let's pray. God, we are thankful we are thankful that in Jesus Christ there is mercy, there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is a, there is a swarm of mercy that can overcome us, there is a, there is a, there is a pile of, 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 of forgiveness that is given to us, there is, a, there is a removal of our guilt, every one of these plagues is, is reversed and turned into to a blessing coming from Jesus that as we come to him, all of our sin is removed. We are, we are like the leper washed clean and healed and our skin is pure. We can come into your presence. We are, we are those who receive sheer mercy, utter, utter grace. There is nothing that we bring in our hands to try and negotiate. There is nothing we bring in our hands to try and bend your arm. We simply come as sinners. We remember that we are lost, guilty, vile sinners and only by the mercy and the grace that is in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord can we be forgiven and saved? We thank you, God, for your sovereign, your unilateral salvation that comes to us. Father God, would you give to the hearts this morning that are still outside of Jesus Christ, to those who even acknowledge your existence, who know that Jesus is Lord, that, 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 that believe the scriptures and try in some way to, to, to have their sins forgiven through their works, would you give to them faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ? Father God, for those who are still rebellious and hard-hearted against you, would you today give them mercy that you never gave to Pharaoh? Would you give to them a softened heart to believe, to love, to receive, to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior? And Father God, we pray against all mindsets and all, all, all ideas of our halfway salvation, like what Pharaoh was putting forward. A kind of salvation that lets us go within the land. Those, those Christians among us who would try to, to have some of salvation from you, yet remain in the land of sin. We pray, God, for a full redemption, a full salvation, that you would remove us from the grip and the power of sin, that we might live to serve and worship you as a holy people 
Father God, would you save today? Would you purify today? Would you empower us today for obedience? Would you, Lord God, be glorified in our midst through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? It is in his name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.